Let's, if you have your, your copy of the scriptures this morning, open up to Psalm 106. It's uh, quite a, a long psalm. We're going to do everything we can to get through all 40-some verses. Um, but first, let's ask God to, to bless His Word to our hearts. Lord, we ask right now that as we open Your Word, um, that our hearts would be receptive to what You're teaching us, that we would be ready and willing to conform our lives and our hearts and our wills to, to the truth of Your Word, knowing that, Lord, if You have revealed this truth to us, it's for our good and it's for Your glory. And we pray that that would guide our minds as we look into your word this morning. We love you and we thank you that this is only possible through the indwelling of your spirit in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. One thing that's been coming up pretty frequently in our, our messages in the past month or so has been this idea of Remembrance. I remember um, two, a little over a month ago when we were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and um, Pastor Jeremy did a great job of reminding us what it means to do this, to take the, the, the bread and to take the wine or the grape juice and um, do this in remembrance of me. And he did that in the context of saying, remember that you... And most of us here would fall into the category of ethnic Gentile type people were once alienated from the promises of God. We were once on the outside, separated by this dividing wall of hostility, as he was preaching from Ephesians, and yet we have been brought near. So there's, there's an important aspect to the Christian life, which is remembering. And here in this psalm, that comes up again, because this is one of the, the many psalms that recount history. And the goal of recounting history is to remember. Now, in some psalms, it's, it's victorious and makes the people of God look good. But in this psalm, it is remembering all the bad things. It's remembering the unbelief and remembering the sin that plagued God's people from the beginning. So it's, it's long, so we're just going to jump right in. Here the, the psalmist starts out with this introductory three verses. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his, all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So this is, the psalmist here is in a, a position of not necessarily feeling like he is experiencing God's favor. He's in a point of need where he is asking God to come to his, his help, to come to the help of the people. 
And we're going to go through each of these kind of mini stories here. And we're just going to see how hard-headed and hard-hearted God's people were. And then we're going to look and see how hard-headed and hard-hearted God's people are a little bit. And I have to say with Paul, myself being the chief, being the foremost of those sinners. So he continues in verse, verses 6 and 7. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. As I've, I think I've mentioned before that um, David and Lisa Fee enticed Valerie and I to go to a movie with them. We went to see Exodus, so I get to put the blame on them. Um, Excuse me. Um, but it, when I think of God parting the Red Sea, it never, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me. Because here was this giant, you know, miniature ocean, but it's big. And here God parts the waters so the people can walk through on dry land. But when I read through the, if you read through the Bible kind of chronologically, you you see you know, right before this, the people are saying, "Come, Moses, what are you doing? Did you bring us out here to die just so Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's army could come out and kill us? But after they get across, so b- before they cross, um, <clears throat> the people say, what, are there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? They, they said, just let us be. Leave us alone, Moses. Don't take us. It's better to serve in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. This is all from Exodus chapter 14. And before Moses raises his hands to, to see God part the Red Sea, he says, the Lord will fight for you. Don't worry. We don't, we're not an army. We don't have um, weapons to fight the army that's coming after us. We're not going to die here. The Lord will fight for us. And he did. What should be our, if you put yourself in that situation, as logical as we are, you'd think, okay, I just saw this miraculous thing, this sea just parted in front of me, and an entire army was drowned behind me after I walked through. You would think that they would believe, right? You'd think they would be completely persuaded of God's goodness and his working on their behalf. But they don't. Continuing in verse 13, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. And this, this is the, the story in the wilderness where they are sick of manna and ask for meat, right? From Numbers 11 and 
God sends all these quail right up to their nostrils is basically what it says in Hebrew. So much quail that they're sick of quail. Now, shouldn't it have been enough that every day there was this manna, and manna just meant what is it? There's just this bread-like substance that gave you all the energy you needed for, for that day. Every day God was providing it. And on one day of the week, he provided exactly the double so that you would have enough to not have to go harvest it on the Sabbath. That's miraculous. But did they believe? No. They're marked by disbelief. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company in Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. This is the story of Korah's rebellion found in Numbers chapter 16. Here, Korah and some of the Levites who are jealous of Moses and Aaron, um, they accuse Moses of thinking that he's somebody special. And Moses responds and he says to them, as Levites, is it too small a thing that God set you apart to be near him, to serve him in the, the priestly, um, in serving in the, the tabernacle and, and being part of that special tribe? But they set, their, they set themselves against God. And how does God respond? When Moses says, okay, God's going to show who he approves of here. And the earth opens up and flame consumes those people who are holding the censer to make an offering to God to prove that they are God's, but they are just on the same level as Moses. What would be our reaction? Right? This is just, we're going through this psalm as he recounts these miraculous acts and deeds that God is doing. And yet the people respond with unbelief as they continue. They made a calf in Horeb at Sinai and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said, he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And here, this is Moses is up on the mountain um, communing with God and receiving the Ten Commandments. And the people basically say, Moses is gone. We don't know if he's coming back because there's fire and lightning and the mountain looks really, really scary. So they go to Aaron, make gods to go before us. We need some, some type of God to go before us, since obviously this God who has only done these ten plagues in Egypt and opened up the sea before us and provided food for us every day and given us more meat than we can handle when we asked for it and complained, who opened up the earth so that people were consumed by it, he's obviously abandoned us. So make gods to go before us. And so... Aaron, they prepare this calf and they say, he says, tomorrow we'll make a feast to the Lord. These are your gods, he says, who brought you out of Egypt. They forgot 
their Savior, like verse 21 says here. They forgot the God who had faithfully accompanied them and rescued them. (coughs) Then, continuing in verse 24, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. They get up to the promised land, remember? And they send the spies in, and the spies go in, and they see this is really the promised land. They see the, the strength of the foes that lie ahead of them, definitely. But they come back, and they... It's too much, right? They, they think we can't do it, and so they lie. And they convince everybody to... <coughs> they give a false report, and they convince everybody to kind of grumble and say, no, 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 this isn't... It's too much for us. We can't go in. We can't defeat these, these people. But Caleb, right, one of those people who went, he says the truth. He says, we'll win. If God has... Come with us this far. Again, opened a sea, delivered us from slavery, opened the sea. We walked through on dry land, provided food for us in the desert, provided everything that we need, done all these miraculous signs. It doesn't matter what those people that lie before us are like. We will be victorious because God will fight for us, like Moses said before the sea. But the people rebelled, right? And here they are standing at the edge of of the promised land. And they say, we wish, and this is in Numbers 14, we wish that we'd never left Egypt. Let's choose another leader and go back. And God judges them. And he says, a generation is going to die in the wilderness. A generation of people who made it to the, the land that God had promised to them. And they missed it. They missed it because of unbelief. In verse 28, continuing, Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. This is a story from Numbers chapter 25. The people had begun mingling with the peoples of the land and worshiping idols and bringing girls back from the Moabites and the, those, those bad people out in the other tribes. And so one man, as, they're sort of, as the leaders are sort of lamenting this fact, brings a woman back to his family. And um, Phineas takes a spear and spears through the man and, and the woman. And because of, because of his zeal, God says that the plague was stayed, even though 24,000 people had died from God, judging them for their idolatry, and he describes them as whoring around. But God had said to kill the idol worshipers. Phineas did just that. He responds in belief. But Phineas was the exception. Do the people respond in obedience or do they respond in unbelief? They continue in unbelief. 
Verse 32, they angered him at the waters of Meribah. And it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. This is from Numbers chapter 20. There's no water, and the people set themselves against Moses again and say, we're in the desert, Moses. There's no water. We need something to drink. Did you bring us out here to die again? That's all he does. We wish we would have died, they say in verse 3 of Numbers Numbers chapter 20. And the Lord says to Moses, tell the rock, to bring forth water. But Moses, in his frustration, strikes the rock two times, and water comes out. These are people who had been, again, walking with the walking accompanied by the miracle working God who had called them out of Egypt, and yet they're living in unbelief. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. After that 40 years in the wilderness, they finally enter the land. And in Joshua, we can read um, that they never fully get all the land that God had told them to to go drive the peoples out. So as they go up towards the northwest, towards the sea, they leave a little bit of the land, they leave some of those people there. They allow some of the people to, to dwell among them. But God had given them a reason to expel the idol worshipers of of those people where they were that they were displacing in the promised land. There was a reason why he was calling them to destroy them, to either drive them out or to kill them. And that was because he knew that this was a people who would continue to fall into idolatry. This was a people marked by unbelief. And so we can read in Judges, there is just cycle after cycle of the people mingling with the, the peoples around them. They worship other gods. They, they live, um, then they're oppressed by those people, they cry out to God, God delivers them through a judge, and then there's one generation usually of faithful people, and then after that, they fall into sin again, and um, then it's oppression, and then they cry out to God, and God redeems them, and then there's a generation of faithful. There are people plagued by unbelief. even to the point of sacrificing their children to the gods, the idols that were around them. They had finally entered the promised land, and yet they continued to forget about God. This cycle of sin and oppression and redemption continued. 
And God, in, in this, in judgment for their sin and their unbelief, God, he let them, uh, he gave them to the nations, as it says here in Psalm 106, verse 41. But he would deliver them, he would hear their cry, he relented from his punishment, and they had favor in their captors' eyes. Now this, when we read this psalm, right, that looks pretty bad. When I read it, especially with all the details from the, the backstories in Numbers and Exodus and Joshua and Judges, it looks really, really bad. But these are just the highlights. This isn't everything. This isn't the whole story. These are the highlights of their lowlights, I guess I should say. <laughs> these are the, the most memorable failures of the people. But really... Sinners who were meant to be in a relationship with God from the very beginning were marked by unbelief and by sin. Adam and Eve, right? First people walking with God in the garden. God says, you can, you can eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but this one. And they, they fall into sin. Cain and Abel, they bring offerings to God. And Abel's offering is acceptable to God. Cain's offering is not. And all God says to Cain is, you know, why is your face fallen? Is what he, he tells him. Why are you angry? Why are you sad? All you have to do is make a right offering and it'll be fine for you. Just do the right thing. But what does Cain do? He murders his brother. Noah, right? Noah's the, the narrative of the flood and Noah's this, portrayed as this righteous man who obeys God, who does what God says, and then directly after, he is a drunk, right, in his tent, and his sons have to go and cover up his nakedness. It's a shameful thing for a man of God. Abraham, two times in the narrative of his life, tells his wife to say that she is his sister when they are once in Egypt and once with Abimelech. Two times. And those, both of those are mentioned after um, interactions with God. It's as if God is showing to us in Genesis, look, here's this man that I've called to be in relationship with me, Abraham. But he's a complete sinner, an utter failure in the chapter after. He makes the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah, right? And do they believe him or do they try to work out their own way? The, the birth of Ishmael tells it all, the story of uh, Sarah and Hagar. The people of God, this, this is a, a defining trait of people who are called by God, that they are sinners and that they're marked by unbelief. Once the Israelites are in the promised land and they establish a kingdom, they ask for a king because they basically say, it's not enough for God to be our king. We want a king like the other nations around us. It doesn't take long after David, who is a righteous king, for the kingdom to be split. And then it'll be, it's years of idol worship and um, altars in the high places, like it says in Kings and Chronicles. And, um, but there's never a time where the people of God are, over a really long period of time, faithful to God. They're marked by sin. And that's shameful, right? 
When, if you say that you're called by God, you're God's chosen people, you'd think that you would be different than the other nations around you. You'd think that you would be different from the other people around you. This is not a psalm that praises God's people. So what can we take from it? I thought of three things that we need to remember. Um, The first being, we need to remember that we come as God's people from a long line of rebellious losers. We come, our lineage is not a good one. We have not a good past. We're like the people, yeah, I'm not going to, I was going to make a movie reference, but I'm not supposed to do that. Um, We need to remember that we come from this long line of sinful people. We can see it in verse 6 of Psalm 106. The psalmist says, both we and our fathers have sinned. He identifies not only with his present state in the, the people of God, but also with their past failures. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And I have a, a few New Testament scriptures here to, you know, because one of the things I was thinking of is, wow, you know, we're sort of different, right? We got this, I have the Spirit of God in me. Um, but th- this, is, this is relevant for us as well. We can read in Ephesians 2 where God says in verses 1 through 4, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see it in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 5 through 10, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in case that we're of the tendency to think, oh, but he's just talking about before we're Christians. Christians here don't struggle. None of you struggle with unbelief ever, right? Hopefully I'm not the only one who struggles with that every once in a while. But the Apostle Paul explains his relationship to sin in this way. In Romans chapter 7, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not know, or I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This sounds like a Laurel and Hardy bit, doesn't it? So I find it to be a, a law. <coughs> I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the first thing that I take from this is, I am one of these people. I am part and parcel of the people of God who would have been standing in the desert with Moses saying, Moses, did you, we had meat in, back in Egypt. Why would you bring us out here in the desert? There's just rocks and I don't know if they have cactus in that desert, but it's, it's just nothing, a wasteland. I would be one of those people. I'm no different than them. Secondly, we have to remember not only that we are sinful and come from this lineage of people who are prone to unbelief and grave sin, but we need to remember that God is faithful. That comes out very often in Psalm 106, where just as often as we see the unfaithfulness of God's people, we see the faithfulness of of the God that was leading them. In verse 8, in Egypt, um, despite the fact that they rebelled by the sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake. In verses 19 through 23, talking about when they, the, the Israelites made the golden calf, um, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior but when we, when we go back to the story in Exodus 32, we see that Moses, he, um, he intercedes on behalf of the people by saying, God, remember what you swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promises. Your God who keeps promises. God is faithful. In verses 44 to 45, the psalmist, as he's finishing up here, he has hope because he knows that God is faithful. Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And we see in Paul's second letter to Timothy, these beautiful verses that many believe were an early hymn in the church. But Paul says, the saying in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny 
himself. God is faithful in spite of our sin and failing and unbelief. He is faithful to his promises. And here's what the writers of Hebrews says about it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Our hope is not in our ability to fulfill what we have promised to God, but in his ability to fulfill what he has promised to us. So we've seen these two opposing, seemingly opposing ideas that we are these worthless, to put it in clear terms, um, rebellious sinners. And yet God, on the other hand, is a faithful and loving God. Now, if I'm imagining in the, the very southern tip of Africa, where the, the Atlantic um, ocean and the Indian Ocean meets. It's known to be a terribly rough place on the sea because there you have two oceans crashing together, right? Moving in different directions. Um, they're, they're interacting not in a harmonious way. So how then do these two seemingly opposed ideas of our sinfulness and worthlessness before God and God's covenant faithfulness, where do they meet? Where can we find hope to know that I'm not just going to be wandering around the desert of my life like the people of God did? So the third thing we need to remember is that where our sin and God's faithfulness meet, where they crash together, Christ is the one who keeps us safe. Christ is the one who makes the difference in how we interact um, with God. And here in Hebrews 10, uh, reading the previous verses from what we just read in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers, starting in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, the thing that we have that the people of God in past times didn't, we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. We have this righteousness that isn't mine, right? I'm a worthless sinner. I'm a rebel. And yet God gave me the obedience of Christ in the place of my, the righteousness that I would try to offer him. God has given me a true righteousness in Jesus. The things that were necessary for a sinner like Mike Gorski to be in fellowship and communion with a covenant, faithful, holy God is the blood 
of Christ shed for my sins. It's the body of Christ broken for my sins. So we, we shouldn't be surprised when Paul says, do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus breaks the bread and we, we take the wine, the grape juice, we're Baptists. Um, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, just like Psalm 106 recounts all, all the, the unbelief, all the rebellion of the people of God. Remember, in spite of your own rebellion, in spite of your own lack of faithfulness and lack of belief, God has provided for you a way to be with him, a way to not only be tolerated by him, but to be called an heir, to be called a son or daughter. When you were an enemy, he's now made you, like Jesus called his disciples, his friends. It's key to remember as we go about our life that without Christ, we don't have anything. Every aspect of our life, as we, as we try to obey or lead a good, ethical, whatever, however we're going to, whatever kind of terms we're going to put it in, if Christ isn't the center of it, there's no point in it, right? There's no point because I, I can't pretend to be this perfect, good person that I'm not, right? Because I know if I didn't have Jesus interceding on my behalf, I wouldn't be able to stand before God. I wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to tolerate my presence, so, now, just to, as, as we close up, each of these three things that we need to remember, we can't only focus on one of them. If we focus on only one of these three pieces of the puzzle, we are going, it's going to lead us to some kind of, some perversion of truth. So, if we focus only on our sin... Wow, if I only thought about Mike Gorsky's sin, I think I would commit suicide because I can't get away from it. Every day I'm reminded of my sin every single day. If I set myself to focus only on that, I will be completely and utterly hopeless. If I set myself to remember only God's faithfulness, right, in the sense of, well, God's, you know, God's... God's good. We're his chosen people. He, he loves us. Jesus died for us, so we're okay. Um, we are going to look at our sin in a glib way. We're not going to take it seriously because we're just going to do, um, like uh, when, I, when I preached from John 6, we're going to assume well, we're the people of God. We're the people of God. We, we have the, the promises. We have the message of Jesus. We have the Baptist, London Baptist Confession of whatever, um, we're going to forget our sin. And if we, um, dare I say, only focus on Christ um, and what he has done for us without taking um, into account our sin and without taking into account God's faithfulness, because really Christ was part of God's plan to reconcile us to himself we would again have an opportunity to sort of tolerate sin. We could say, oh, well, Jesus paid for it. And God says, um, or I'm, oh, I'm trying to think, I'm sorry, the cold medicine is, whew, got medicine head. Um, 
I'm trying to think of the exact wording in Romans 6. What then? So how Paul puts it. Are we, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? We, we can't assume that, oh, it's okay. My sin is nothing because Jesus paid for it. It takes each of these three pieces of the puzzle to have a right understanding of who we are before God and how we live now. Now, in the same way that we, have, we can't isolate any one of these, we can't neglect any one of them either. Because if, if, uh, if we leave any one of them out, it's going to be incomplete in the same way. And really, the way that this works itself out is we remember our sin, as we remember God's faithfulness, and as we remember Christ's provision to pay for our sin and reconcile us to God, what this looks like in the day-to-day is just daily confession and repentance. The Christian life doesn't start with a prayer of confession and repentance and, okay, now your sinner's prayer, got it out of the way, now I'm okay with God. It is a life it's a, it's a lifestyle of repentance where daily we need to remembering as I, as I sin against some of you every day, right? When you come bother me or whatever, I don't know. None, none of you can bother me. But my, you know, with our families, that's a, a very clear one where how often do we um, get frustrated with the people who are closest to us and we want to say a sharp word to them or we want to slam the door or whatever, That's a moment, that's an opportunity that God is giving us to confess that sin and to repent and to experience renewed communion with God. So when I look at Psalm 106, I'm not discouraged when I see the unfaithfulness of God's people in all these stories. I know I'm in good company. And I know that God has promised me that if I come to him, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So that's, that's what I would encourage you to do. And I even, I even thought about trying to keep a journal just for one week of every time I felt like I was sinning. Write it, write it down and go to God specifically for that time and confess and repent. And if, if we actually did that, we would be shocked at the number of, we'd fill up a notebook, I think, in a week. Or I would be scared to death because we wouldn't think that we are sinners who need a Savior. Um, but that's, that's what I leave you with, is an encouragement to not, um, to not be discouraged when you see your sin, but to lean into Christ. As uh, Robert, uh, Robert Murray McChain used to say, For every look that you take to yourself and to your sin, take 10,000 looks to Christ. Remember that you are a great sinner, but remember that God is a faithful God who, through Christ, reconciles us to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're imperfect. We thank you that you've given us this book that is full of imperfect, sinful people, even downright rebellious people that you call your people. 
I think of David, Lord, who was called a man after your own heart, and yet he was an adulterer and a murderer. It's because he understood his sin. He understood your covenant faithfulness, Lord. And now looking back through the lens of Christ, through the lens of his death and resurrection, Lord, we ask that you would give us that same heart to understand and to remember that while we are great sinners, while we are completely undeserving of any goodness, of any mercy and grace that you would give us, you are faithful to your promises. You're faithful to complete the work which you have begun in our lives. And so we ask that as we go forward today and this week, that you would help us to refocus, that you would help us to remember that uh, a lifestyle of confession and a lifestyle of repentance leads us to joy. It doesn't lead us to, to sadness and despair. It leads us to fellowship with the one who made us. It leads us to depend on the Savior who lived a perfect life, the perfect life that we couldn't live, the life that you demanded, God, in order to, to be in a right relationship with you. So, Lord, as we go, as we sin against you and as we sin against each other this week, I pray that you would make us mindful of these truths, Lord. And I pray that you would be honored and worshiped and glorified for what you have done to bring us to yourself in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.